Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamensa. If this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, we welcome you and we hope that you return for future episodes and more content. And if you're a returning viewer or listener of the podcast, we welcome you back. And we hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and insightful. So before we get to the main event, as always, we're going to do a few quick announcements. So we know that Teacher Appreciation Week is coming to an end, but it's not too late to show some love to your favorite teachers and colleagues. So if you're looking for some swag, some hoodies, some accessories to show love to your favorite teachers, head on to the Identity Talk Apparel Shop at the Teespring site. And the website for our listeners is teespring.com backslash stores backslash the hyphen identity hyphen talk hyphen apparel hyphen shop. So hopefully you got that down. And then for our people who are still looking for some professional development for this year, as the year's winding down, we have our Shape of the Teacher Identity 101 virtual program which is self-paced and available on Teachable. So if you're looking to learn more about culturally responsive teaching, anti-racist practices, everything from classroom management, lesson planning, time management, and all the important aspects that we need to know about teaching, make sure you book a call with us today at Conley.com backslash Identity Talk for Educators. So those are our quick announcements. Now we're going to get to the main event. And today's guest is somebody who is just very special. Um, I've been following her for a while now, and you've probably seen a lot of her sketch noting and her artwork on different social media platforms. It's just a distinctive style that is hard for you not to miss. But we're actually making our virtual travels to Toronto, Canada to talk with today's guest. So we're going to get into just her journey in education, uh, her love for the arts and sketchnoting, and just how she's been involved in social justice causes and, and everything that's going on in our world. So without further ado, I'm honored to bring on uh, Mrs. Sylvia Duckworth to the podcast to talk with us. So let's give a warm welcome. 
virtually. Hello. Hi, Kwame. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I'm really honored, truly honored. Oh, the feeling is mutual. So how are things going? Uh, we're surviving, you know. Um, I'll be really looking forward to our lockdown being over. We're in Toronto, Canada, and if anyone, any of your listeners have been paying any attention to what's happening here in Toronto, it's not been good with COVID. So we're in full lockdown mode and uh, everything's shut down, all the stores. And um, so I'm looking forward to that being over. It has, it's been a really tough winter for everyone. I can't even imagine, but you know, at the same time, you're safe, family's safe, and you know, you're able to wake up and and just live another day. You know, some oh, people can't say that. No, you're absolutely right. And I'm really, really glad I'm not teaching right now. <laughs> I'm retired. Four years retired. If I had to teach through this, I don't think I would last for very long. I just have so much admiration for teachers who are um, hanging in there and, and doing the best they can with teaching virtually. It must be so difficult. And and as you know, with education, um, our profession just continues to evolve mm -hmm. every single year. But with COVID-19 and this new virtual learning era, it's really evolved exponentially. Mm -hmm. So I'm not in the classroom neither. Mm -hmm. um, I've been out of the classroom for a couple of years, you know, because I'm here in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia with my wife and, you know, she's doing her job with the Peace Corps. So I haven't been in the classroom during this new virtual learning era. So uh, I can't even imagine um, how it would fare. I mean, I would figure it out, but mm -hmm. I know that there will be some challenges and, mm -hmm. All I can do is tip my hat off to the, all the people mm -hmm. who are in the trenches right now, just mm -hmm. going through it. It's absolutely, it's you know, if you had to put a positive spin on it, I guess you could say that those teachers who were reluctant about technology and embracing it in the classroom are now forced to use it. Right. And so um, when things go back to normal teachers who, we're hesitant to use technology. Maybe now they'll see the benefits of technology in the classroom. Because um, when I was teaching, I know that, um, I mean, it really is age dependent, but certainly teachers my age were more reluctant to use technology than, than the younger teachers. And now I think they're all forced to use it. So, so they'll, have, um, they'll have learned a lot by the time this is all over. I mean, you don't have much of a choice but to learn yeah uh, because we're all on the same playing field at this point yeah but we're going to talk more about the technology a little bit later on because i mm -hmm. do have some questions about that and i want to tap into your your ed tech expertise to you know get your thoughts on it mm -hmm. but uh i always like to start off by asking my guest to tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you into the field of education mm. It's funny, um, I actually always wanted to be a phys ed teacher. I, was, I, I love sports and I played sports my whole life. Um, and I had some really bad phys ed teachers growing up, teachers that I just um, didn't get along with and they were um, teaching phys ed in, you know, focusing on skill development as opposed to fitness and 
you know, really, really boring phys ed classes. And so I said, I'm going to become a phys ed teacher. I'm going to be that phys ed teacher I never had. So I went to university for, for phys ed and got my teaching degree and um, looked for a teaching job as soon as I graduated. And there were no phys ed teaching jobs. But I had a minor in French, so I got a job teaching French. And so I ended up teaching French. I never, I, I taught a bit of phys ed, but I grew to love teaching French. So I just stuck to teaching French. Here in Canada, we have two official languages. We have French and English. So there are a lot of French teachers up here. Well, awesome. Well, très bien. Uh-huh. I, I, I learned French during high school. So that was actually um, one of my favorite subjects growing up. Oh, good for you. Do you ever, yeah. use, do you ever use it? I don't, I don't ever get a chance to use it because no one else really speaks it. But mm. I do remember how to conjugate my verbs, mm. my regular verbs. So I do remember how to do that. And I can read some French. So if you give mm. me, you know, some script or anything that's written in French, mm -hmm. I can translate it and, and let you know, like, okay, this is what it's saying or give me an idea. So I, I have a little bit retained still. <laughs> you, you probably just, if you were immersed in French, you'd probably pick it up pretty fast because you have a bit of a background in it. Yeah, yeah. it was definitely helpful when we went to uh, Paris a mm -hmm. couple years ago and we're going to restaurants and, you know, everything is in French, the menus and everything. And, you know, I was able to at least order what I wanted Mm -hmm. without having to ask for a translation. So I would say that's a win. <laughs> Good for you. Well, you know, in because we have two official languages here, there's a huge French immersion track that a lot of students go into. And um, I didn't actually, that didn't exist when I was growing up, but I wanted to learn French. And so my sister and I, I have an identical twin. Um, and our dad lives in Montreal. So in Canada, all of Canada is pretty well English, except for this one province, Quebec, which is all French. Right. And, and he lives in Montreal. My parents divorced. And so um, he ended up finding a French family that I could live with and a different French family that she could live with. We were in grade 11 at the time. And we went to this French school. And that's how we learned French. We actually immersed ourselves in French for a whole year. Um, but now... You can, like my daughters, who are now 28 and 30, um, when they were little, we put them in a French immersion program. And so they learned how to speak French when they were little, but that didn't exist when we were growing up. So um, the, the best way to learn a language is really to immerse yourself in it, for sure. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Um, I felt like I was picking up more of the French when I was just in that community. So, you know, without the textbooks and all the other materials and resources that they give us to teach us the language. I was just able to pick up cues, uh, pick up dialects and, and all these different aspects. And, and it really helped to accelerate my process, but I just wasn't in that space long enough to really get a, a full grasp of, of the language. So that's, and you were in Paris too. That's not a, not too bad a place to try and pick up some French. What a beautiful city. Except you're with your wife. See, if, if you really want to learn French, you ditch the wife and you'd get a French girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know about all that, but maybe my single days, that would have been an option for sure. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So you mentioned that you wanted to be a physical education teacher, mm-hmm. but then you ended up being a French teacher. Mm-hmm. So what I want to know is, when did you develop this love for for the arts and for and for sketching because you know that's what you do now mm-hmm. you know primarily so how did that love come about and at what age okay um i'm actually i should probably explain what sketch noting is um because yeah. it's not really sketching um mm-hmm. and it's not really art so um, sketch noting is a process of taking notes, um, using drawings and, and doodles. So instead of just taking notes like on the computer or taking notes by hand, by writing things down, you actually combine um, drawings with words. And when you combine drawings with words, that's called sketch noting. And I developed an, an interest in this, I'm going to say about 10 years ago. Um, I was on Twitter quite a bit at, at the time. I don't use Twitter as much now. I'm more on Instagram, but, um, and I started to notice these beautiful sketch notes that were related to education. And I thought, wow, they're beautiful. Like they really, they're visually appealing and they really grabbed my attention. And so I, I, and I decided that I was going to try and learn how to do it myself. And so I just, reached out to some mentors on Twitter that was doing, that were doing sketch noting. And I asked them like, what tools do you use? And, um, um, you know, uh, cause I, I love technology. So I started drawing on the iPad. You can sketch note on pen and paper, but I always start on my iPad. So like what apps do you use? You know, what styluses should I use? Um, and uh, I loved it and I worked, I, I ended up developing a passion for it. And um started putting my sketch notes on Twitter and all my sketch notes at the time were related to education. And then those become, became pretty popular on Twitter. And then eventually I created a book with 100 of my favorite sketch notes related to education. That was called sketch notes for educators. And then a couple of years after that, I wrote a book on how to sketch notes. So it's, um, that's the title, actually, How to Sketch Note, a step-by-step manual for teachers and students. And, and then I retired from teaching full-time. And for the past four years, I've been giving workshops on how to sketch note, mostly to educators. Um, I was traveling around the world doing these workshops in person. And in the past year, they've gone virtual. So um, when I was growing up, I actually... Kwame, um, I didn't do a lot of art like I did when I was young. And and then I hit about 10 years old and I decided I wasn't very good at it. So I stopped drawing altogether. And then it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I took it up again. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, wow. you know, when I when I talk to teachers in workshops and I I ask them, like, when did you stop drawing or when did you stop? enjoying drawing and most of them said it happened around 10 years old as well and then I said well why did you stop drawing and usually was like yeah they lost their confidence in drawing and it's funny if you think of 
little kids, like I know my kids growing up, all my students, if they're under 10 years old, they love to draw. And then around 10 years old, they start to lose their love of drawing. Um, and it's an interesting concept when you think of it, like why do people love their love of drawing, lose their love of drawing? And I think it's because they lose their self-confidence. So that's something that I had to regain um, when I took up sketch noting. That is so interesting because I was a child who loved to draw. Mm-hmm. Like I drew every day, mm-hmm. drew pictures of of different here, different superheroes, uh, different athletes, just anything I can get my hands on. And it was around that age, mm-hmm. 10, 11 years old, that things just stopped. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was a case where as I was getting older, uh, my skills were remain were remaining stagnant. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't really see the the development mm-hmm. in my own drawings, but mm-hmm. I just eventually stopped drawing. And it wasn't until I became a teacher where I started to draw again. Mm-hmm. And usually it was in situations where, you know, my students would would ask me to draw a picture, you know, for them if we're doing a project or show them how to draw a hand, how to draw a nose. And then I would end up just drawing like a whole figure and then they'll be blown away. Like, wow, like, you know how to draw? Like, yeah. So I don't think ever you ever lose those skills. Mm-hmm. I think once you get the self-confidence back, mm-hmm. they need to tap back into, you know, that, that artistic bag. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And once you start, once you take up drawing again, you kind of remember how much, how enjoyable it is. Like you can really get lost in your creativity. And for me, when I'm being creative like that, it's my happy zone. Like I can, if I'm working on, uh, so so now, so now we're talking about not sketch noting per se, but my, uh, what I've been doing more recently is creating graphics for Instagram related to social justice. And when I create a graphic, um, there's so much thought goes into it. Lots of research goes into it as well. But once I start drawing, I'm just kind of like in this, in this zone where I could be working on a graphic for hours and not even notice like time would go by and I'm like, just having, I'm enjoying it so much that, and that's all part of the creativity process. It, it could be drawing. It could be, you know, uh, making a video, anything where you think of where you use your creative skills that, um, that makes it, really enjoyable. Kwame, what do you do to be creative? Well, this podcast is a way of being creative, isn't it? Well, this podcast definitely helps with the creativity. Mm -hmm. I actually went ahead and did the decorations for the background. I'm a Canva fanatic. Mm. So um, I like to do my own flyers and and backgrounds and sometimes I do backgrounds for, you know, other educator friends who, who are trying to start their own podcast as well. So I I tap into my creativity in mm-hmm. different ways. And it's fun, uh, isn't it? You it's know, fun. it's definitely fun yeah. just being able to build something. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Like even right now, I'm in the process of uh, writing another book. And, you know, that's another way where I'm tapping to my creativity Absolutely. as far as figuring out how to format it, um, you know, what interviews to include. Mm-hmm. how to organize the content. It, it's a whole process that can that can just take months. Oh, yeah. 
you know, to do. So I'm definitely very much into that creative process and, and just digging in that way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I do want to backtrack and, and talk about sketch noting because yeah. you mentioned what it was. Mm-hmm. But I want to know, just as an educator, and for our educators who are listening or watching, why is it such a valuable tool, not just for educators, but for the students in the mm-hmm. classroom? Because I know that I have students who may be auditory. I have students mm-hmm. who are more visual. Mm-hmm. They need to see the images in order to process the information that they're given. So walk us through the benefits of sketchnoting and how it helps with uh, student performance and achievement. For sure. Um, all right. So have you ever been in a meeting or on a phone call and your mind starts to drift and you start doodling? Like you've got a pen and you've got a piece of paper and you just start doodling. Do you ever do that? All the time. Oh my okay. goodness. So <laughs> what's interesting about doodling is that contrary to a popular opinion, when you doodle like that, it's your brain's attempt to stay focused on what's going on around you. Because if you weren't doodling, you might fall asleep. You mm-hmm. might look at your phone. Um, you might you know, be looking out the window and daydreaming. So doodling, when you're, when you're actively engaged in drawing, while listening to something, it actually keeps you more engaged in whatever is happening around you. So it keeps you more focused. And there's actually been studies that have proven this over and over again, and not necessarily sketchnoting per se, but drawing. So there's a couple of studies. Um, One was done where they had taken two groups of adults and both groups had to listen to a really boring, tedious, pre-recorded phone conversation. One group was allowed to doodle while they were listening to the phone conversation. The other group was not allowed to doodle. And then the researchers tested later, how many words do they recall from the conversation? And the group that was allowed to doodle was able to recall almost twice as many words than the group that wasn't allowed to doodle. And the doodles didn't even necessarily have anything to do with the conversation, the phone conversation. Just the act of doodling kept the brain that much more awake and that much more engaged in listening to that conversation. So sketchnoting has a lot of science to back it up in terms of focus and engagement and concentration. But on top of that, it's fun, like it's a really fun way to take notes. Like if, if your students are struggling with taking notes and they hate taking notes, ask them to throw in a few drawings and a few doodles with their notes. And if they do that, then they're sketch noting and all of a sudden it becomes something fun to do. So there's a combination of factors that are really beneficial for students. And as you were talking, I just kept thinking about all those times where the teacher walks up to the student who's 
either drawing or doodling while lessons going on. And then the teacher confiscates the paper that the student's drawing on and puts it on a desk or throws it away. You know, it is something that's really commonplace. So I'm wondering when you've done these workshops on sketchnoting, have you ever had teachers who try to push back and say, well, if they're doodling or if they're doing this activity while I'm doing a lesson, how can they be engaged in what yes. I'm teaching? So do this, you get that pushback? Oh, yeah. We, get, we, we have a whole <laughs> conversation on that because we are trained as teachers to say to students, look at me so that I right. know that you're listening. And research has proven the opposite. Research has proven that the students who are actively engaged with actually doing something can listen better and can focus better sometimes. So this is, um, I mean, it obviously depends what you're doing. Like if you're putting a mathematical equation on the board, then you want your students to watch what you're doing. But if you're just, you know, lecturing, um, instead of the students falling asleep, listening to you, have them, you know, draw some doodles, have them doodle to keep them more actively engaged in, in what you're saying. Um, so there is a there is a lot of pushback. And I actually, I have a document that I provide teachers in my workshops because there could be pushback from, from parents as well. And there could be pushback from administrators. Like, what do you mean you're letting your students doodle in class? Um, so I have all kinds of articles and blog posts that support sketchnoting and doodling in the classroom. But that's, that's for sure it's a conversation that we have to have. And it's so weird that the conversation has to be had because if you even go back to some of the theories that have been put out there in the past, like for mm-hmm. instance, um, we can even talk about uh, Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences theory. Mm-hmm. Where, okay, we have Eight types of intelligences, of course, nine if you add the naturalist one, because that's more recent. But the whole idea that students process and receive information in different ways mm-hmm. based on the intelligences they tap into. Mm-hmm. If we're trying to standardize way in which students process information, then while we talk so much about things such as uh, differentiation or uh, universal design for learning, right? And then all these other fancy terms that we, we throw out there in education that pretty much talk about tapping into the different learning styles mm-hmm. and ways students process and access information. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And I have so many anecdotes of students who hated taking notes until they started sketchnoting. And, you know, it, it just was, it, it, it can be a game changer for a lot of students. Yeah, it definitely can, but it definitely does require a reframing of what it means to be engaged. Absolutely. In class. There's but a paradigm shift that has to happen. For sure. Um, but the other thing I need to emphasize is that you don't have to be an artist to sketch note. Like a lot of right. teachers in particular, the first thing I'll ask at the beginning of a workshop is how many of you say you can't draw? And so like, you know, most of them will put up their hand. And then at the end of the day, 
or at the end of the session, I'll say, so how many of you think maybe you can sketch note now? And they like, it's almost a complete reversal because you're not actually, you're not sketching, you're sketch noting. So you're just doing, you're just drawing just little symbols that represent certain things. Let me give you an example. So I would take them through um, how to draw really basic things like a computer. Like there's, you can draw a computer in 20 seconds. Um, and I mean, if I were to ask you to draw a computer right now, you, you might be able to do it, you might struggle with it. Um, some teachers who struggle with it, I'll say, look, this is how you draw a computer and I can do it in 20 seconds. And so once you know how to draw a computer, you can use it to represent anything you do on a computer. So Kwame, what do you do on a computer? I mean, we type. What else? Uh, we can also do drawings with mm -hmm. different apps. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, like anything I, I do on a computer, like email, research, right. um, homework, lesson planning, um, uh, even uh, social media. So if you know how to draw a computer, you can use that to represent so many different things in a sketch note. So say you're doing a sketch note, you're taking notes and someone says technology, and then you want to represent that, you can draw it with a computer. Or someone else says research, you can draw a computer. You know, like, um, so there are these key icons that once you know how to draw them, um, you can do a lot with sketch notes. And so my workshops is taking the teachers through what are these key icons that you can use in your sketch notes without having to know how to draw. Um, uh, in fact, there's a sketch noter, her name is Katie Hayes, and she did a TED Talk. And she says, and I agree with her, that you only need to know how to draw about 100 icons, like these icons are these little symbols I'm telling you about, um, to know how to tell any story in sketch notes. So um, another example would be like a light bulb. If you can draw a light bulb, and I, again, I show the teachers how to draw a light bulb, you can use that to represent what do you think of when you see a light bulb, Kwame? An idea. Yeah. What else? Um, just light. Mm -hmm. Light, <laughs> electricity, innovation. Electricity. Yeah. Innovation, creativity, an aha what? moment, a spark. Mm -hmm. um, what about a rocket ship? If you could draw a rocket ship, a really fast rocket ship, what could a rocket ship represent? A rock ship could represent the launch of something. Mm -hmm. You're about to begin a lesson or, yeah. or, or an activity. For sure. Taking off. Um, Taking off, right. Innovation, the future. Um, yeah, launching. So the point is that you don't need to know how to sketch stuff. You just need to know how to take an idea and bring it down to the very bare essence of what it is that you're trying to draw. And this is what I take the teachers through and the students through when I do my workshops. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So it really all depends on uh, context. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it depends on the subject you're teaching as well. So, you know, the icons that you need to know for, for, you know, um, French would be different for the, icons you need to know for history. And I encourage teachers before they start a unit to actually brainstorm with their students. Now, what icons are we gonna need to sketch note in this unit? 
So for example, there's a teacher um, who has who's done this activity with, um, uh, what was it? Um, I, I forget what it was now. I had to, If I had my notes, I could pull it up. But the point is that she gets her students to brainstorm all the icons that they need. And then the students would put these icons on like a post-it note and put it somewhere in the classroom so that other students can go to that bulletin board and take a look at these icons that maybe they could use for that unit. Wow, so they're, so they're actually co-creating a, a key of right. icons to use. Exactly, exactly. Wow. Yeah, so it's not like, I might draw a light bulb to represent creativity, but you might draw like a, a paintbrush to represent creativity. You might draw a camera to represent, like there's no hard and fast rule that you need to use this icon to represent these different things. So people will have all different ideas and what icons to use in their own sketch notes. Well, as long as they have a key that equates the icons to certain concepts, right. that's all that matters. And I think it goes back to what you're saying about how certain students process information. Mm -hmm. So we don't need to have these hard, fast, standardized rules that everybody has to adhere to. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's an extra toolkit for, for students who, for taking notes. And so it might work for some students, it might not. You know, some students might prefer taking notes on their computer. They might prefer taking notes um, with just handwriting and not the doodles. But the, the, uh, the, the importance is that you give these students the tools and you explain the theory behind it. You let them try it out. And if they decide they like it, then who knows? It could be a real aha moment for a lot of students. I wish I took your workshop when I was still in the classroom. Uh, we're having this conversation, I'm like, wow. It's a because lot of fun. I was doing a little bit of sketch noting, but I didn't have the language that you have to yeah. call it that. Like yeah. I didn't even realize there was a term for for that. Yeah, wow. it's it's a fun workshop. It's a, it's hands-on too, and so um we have a lot of fun. It's it, and I do workshops like from an hour to two hours to three hours to half a day to a full day, and um, now I'm doing the vir them virtually. And it's it's not the same, but we can still get through the material, and it's a fun workshop. Well, that's that's great. Mm -hmm. So I want to transition into just ed tech in general because now. We're in this virtual learning era where teachers are forced to make some changes to their instruction. You know, non-negotiable changes. And if you're someone who was already well-versed in technology pre-COVID and you were doing this in, you know, in your classroom in person, the transition's definitely a lot smoother compared to those who were more resistant uh, to the different technology out there. So like I know for myself, I was doing a lot of Google Classroom. I was using, you know, Go Guardians and I was using all these other apps that are now very popular now because they have to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I'm wondering is with, with this emergence of, of ed tech and all these apps that 
we're now being forced to use with our students, do you believe that more teacher ed programs should incorporate these apps in their curricula to better prepare teachers for this current context? Because this is what's going to be the thing we do for the foreseeable future. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. And I think COVID has really brought that reality to life like this. Yeah. I, I think a teacher education program that doesn't have a huge emphasis on technology is really, is really lacking and irresponsible because this may be the first of many pandemics to come, right? Like we don't know, this may be our new reality, just pandemic after pandemic after pandemic with all the international <laughs> travel that everyone does now. Um, I mean, fingers crossed it won't happen that way, but yeah, so any any education program worth its salt is, is going to have to really emphasize uh, the, the technology aspect of teaching, I think, moving forward for sure. And, and do you believe that this is something that can last, I don't know, two years, five years? Like it's, it's so uncertain, like how far this is gonna go. This particular pandemic? This pandemic that we're in right now. Yeah, I think it probably depends on where you are in the world. Like, mm -hmm. it, like I think um, uh, the more developed countries, you know, the, the richer countries, that have vaccines, they're gonna get over it faster. But then look at, you know, a country like India and they're really suffering right now because they don't have enough vaccines. So who knows is how long it's gonna take. I mean, I think the US is, um, is probably ahead of the game because there's so many vaccines in the US. Canada's a little bit behind. But the, the really sad thing in the US is that they have lots of availability, but not everyone is taking advantage of that. Like there's a lot of Americans who don't want the vaccine. They, they're not convinced that the vaccine is actually helpful. And a lot of them don't even believe that COVID is a real thing. So, um, so this, this pandemic, I think, will end at some point, depending on um, the accessibility to vaccines. Um, but like I said, this may be the first of many in our, in our future. Right. And I know it's, it's become very political, uh, definitely in the States. Yeah. Um, and I know with the last administration, uh, they definitely weren't the biggest believers, um, of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that's a, so Kwame, I was doing some traveling recently and, so we were in, we started off in Arizona um, where you wouldn't even know there was a pandemic and it's, um, it's a red state. And then you go to, then we were in San Francisco, which is a mm -hmm. blue state and everyone's wearing masks. Like you can't go anywhere outside. You can't even go for bike ride. Like everyone's wearing masks. Um, so definitely politics has a lot to do with it. Oh yeah, it's it's definitely uh, powerful um, over here. So I don't know how it is in Canada with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and how he's handling it and his thoughts, but I know that I know that they're taking it 
a lot more seriously. I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. We I'm believe assuming. in, we, we trust, we trust the scientists. Yeah. We're taking it very seriously. And Canadians are just, they can't get that vaccine fast enough. Like everyone's trying to get a vaccine. Well, I can only imagine. So, so earlier uh, you were talking about uh, your social media graphics that you do um, on the regular, uh, which are just phenomenal, by the way. Thank you. Um, you know, I always look forward to when some issue comes up. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what Sylvia's going to sketch note about. Like, I wonder what the next graphic's going to be. And it's always like this. It seems to be a quick turnaround. You know, when you when you do it, like you're just on your toes mentally when you create these different graphics. So you are beginning to talk about the process you go through creatively mm-hmm. to get those graphics out there. Mm-hmm. But I want to know where you draw your, informi- your inspiration from to create the graphics first off. And then when you do create a graphic generally, because I know depend on what the subject matter is it may take a day to get it done it may take a number of days because you might have to do some some edits and some amendments here and there so just walk us through your mental and creative process when you create these graphics yeah for sure um it really depends on the graphics so the other thing I like to do in my graphics is amplify other people's voices. So people who are um, uh, social justice leaders, um, I might take a quote of theirs and put that in a graphic. Um, or I might take a concept and um, put that in a graphic so that it's easier for people to understand. Because I find that People really respond to visuals. Um, I also get a lot of inspiration from a group of other artists who are on Instagram who are doing a lot of graphics for social justice. And there's about 30 artists. I'm actually in a chat group with them on Instagram. And we share graphics and ideas. And, you know, one of them will say, did you hear what's going on, you know, with the AAPI attacks? And, and um, we share resources and, and ideas. And that's a fabulous group. In fact, if your listeners are interested in following these artists, if you go to my link tree on Instagram, I have a whole list of the artists. And so what you're looking for is um, the, the link that's, that's called um, 30 social justice act, um, artists to follow on Instagram. So I'm going to say it's about 10, 10 down on my list, on my link tree on my Instagram um, bio. So I get a lot of inspiration from them as well. Uh, and then I've been also doing a lot of reading in the past year, like since the George Floyd murder, I've been learning more about anti-racism and I might I might try to consolidate what I've been learning into a graphic. Like for example, I learned about um, privilege, the different kinds of privilege, like there's white privilege, but there's also financial privilege and mental health privilege, like all these different kinds of privileges. And I put them into a circle and I called it um, the wheel of power and privilege. And so in the center of the wheel is 
is where the power and the privilege is, and the outside is where the marginalized um, people and oppressed people are. And so, like, I'll try to consolidate that idea into a graphic to make it easier for people to understand. So I, I draw inspiration from lots of different sources. And um, just to let you know, uh, you had created a graphic uh, focused on the characteristics of white supremacy culture. Yes. And I actually have it in my collections on Instagram because one of the chapters I'm writing about is focused on just examining whiteness in, in education in general and actually touch on those characteristics, all uh, 15 of them, and yes. just provide examples. So I was like, ooh, this is right up my alley. Let me just put that in the co collection. Just see, to see, Kwame, like people have, like you can look at that. You know, I, I got those points from an article and you can say to someone here, read this article, or you can show them some visuals and that's when they go, oh, okay, now I'm going to pay attention because there's a visual that goes with it, um, which I think is the power of putting things into a graphic because it really makes people pay that much more attention to whatever it is that you want to share with them, right? No, absolutely. And yeah. and I was actually reading the article, yeah. the Dismantling Racism Workbook, mm -hmm. where those 15 characteristics stem from. And, you know, I'm a pretty, I, I like to think I'm a pretty smart guy. You know, I was reading through it and some were just easier to, Grass. To grasp, yeah. As soon as you read it, and then there's somewhere I had to read it like three, four times before I understood exactly what that characteristic meant. Mm -hmm. But then I come across your your graphic just by chance, mm. and the way you broke it down mm. with an example of each one, with the example of each one, just allowed me to process some of those characteristics where I was struggling. Mm -hmm. Just like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And that's why. Thank you for sharing that because that 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 really motivates me to continue to create these graphics where I try to summarize the learning that I've been doing in my anti-racism readings. Um, but there's also like I I can't take credit for all of these people that I've been learning from, all I can do is try to do the justice, do them justice by, by creating a piece of artwork that represents their work. Right. And, but another thing too, that's very important about sketch noting, and you probably didn't mention this, but we're in this social media era mm -hmm. where expediency and just this sense of immediacy is mm. is so important mm -hmm. you know people don't really appreciate long form content like for mm -hmm. instance podcasts like this mm -hmm. they want something they can watch in two three minutes yeah and then just keep it moving so when you have those graphics out there that people can can actually, you know, look at to mm -hmm. at least get the cliff nose version totally <laughs> of what's out there is yeah. definitely helpful. 
But I'm, but I'm pretty sure you make it clear that it's not a substitute for actually doing your research and the actual reading. That's why, yeah, whenever I post something, I always say, um, look at, like, I always post more information on my link tree. My link tree must have about 200 different links there because every time I put a post on Instagram, I will add like two or three articles for people to read to get more information on it than, than just what's in the graphic. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like that's, I've learned so much on Instagram. Like I follow these amazing um, anti-racism leaders and I have learned so much from them and buying their books and like reading their posts, but also buying their books and reading more in depth of, of, of what they have to, to offer. Um, I also on my, Linktree, I also have created a list uh, called anti-racism resources for educators. So on this list is like 24 different books that I've read that I highly recommend and Instagram accounts of leaders in anti-racism and um, different podcasts, which I'm going to add yours onto the, my list as well, different movies and other further reading. So um, I encourage listeners uh, to take a look at that list as well. Wow, I'm I'm just honored. I, I made it to the Sylvia Duckworth Absolutely. list. Absolutely, I, I feel I feel so honored. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But you were talking about a white privilege earlier. Yeah. So I know in Toronto, it's definitely like. The UK in a sense that it's very multicultural. You have, mm -hmm. you know, almost it's like a melting pot of cultures and you have different yeah. people who are who reside there from from different walks of life. So yeah. what I want to know is when was the first time you were consciously aware of your own white privilege? And when you did become aware of it, did you fully acknowledge it at you know right? at that moment or did it take you a process to do so? Um, it's, it's been a process and I'm going to say it, it, I mean, I was aware that I lived a privileged life, but I wasn't aware of how privileged I was until I started doing this anti-racism reading and learning things like intersectionality, uh, Kim, Kimberly Crenshaw's For concept sure. of intersectionality um, and how, people have privileges in some areas and then they don't have privileges in other areas. Um, and um, have you heard of the iceberg illusion? Yes, I have. Um, that's one of my favorite graphics, by the way. Okay. Yes. So the iceberg illusion is something that I drew, I'm going to say about four or five years ago. And it was based on a book that I read by Matthew Syed. He's a UK based journalist and um, broadcaster. And, his book was called um, Bounce, The Science of Success. And so he basically says that um, there's no such thing as natural talent, that if you, you get good at something by actually working hard at it. And so I drew this iceberg illusion where you've got this iceberg and at the top of the iceberg represents success. And then there's the water. And then underneath the water, you've got things like persistence and failure. So things that you don't see. So you see the success on top and under the water, you don't see like the persistence that went into 
achieving success, the failures you may have had, the sacrifice you had to make, the disappointments, the discipline it took, the hard work, the dedication, those types of things. So I drew this um, iceberg illusion. It became really, really popular. And at, at one point it was like the top hit on Reddit. Um, but then with my readings in the past year, I realized that there's a really key component of that iceberg illusion, that iceberg theory. And what do you think that key component that I was missing? Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. What, what was it? Well, it's privilege. There you go. All right. So, um, like, I've achieved a relatively high level of success in my life, and it's not necessarily only because of my hard work and my persistence, right? It's because of my privilege. I, I, I have a university education. I'm white. Um, I, I'm healthy. I'm able-bodied. I have good mental health. You know, like these things all have to do with my being relatively successful in my professional life, right? So I actually redrew the iceberg illusion. And if you go to my Instagram now, I posted it again. I reposted it a couple, uh, I'm going to say about a month ago. So it's up there now where you've got the first time I drew it and I called it um, theory. And then when you click on it again, you see the next slide is reality. And reality is this huge chunk underneath the water this huge chunk of the iceberg is, uh, is actually privilege. So this is something that I've become much more aware of since I've been doing these readings on anti-racism and Kimberly Crenshaw's notion of intersectionality. And um, I wanted to ask you this, and wait, hold on a second. Because over this past week, there's been so much conversation around critical race theory mm. and all these different arguments and conversations. So what I want to know is, have you in the past done any graphics on critical race theory? And if you haven't, is that something that's on cue given the conversations? Yeah. Do you, I would love to collaborate on a graphic with you. So why don't you, you and I will do another, hang out, we'll do, have another conversation and let's do one together because I'd love to pick your brain on that. I don't know too much about critical race theory. I have to learn more about it. Are you, are you well-versed on it? No, I'm not going to say I'm the expert on it, yeah. but I do know some folks who are very well-versed in that who would definitely be great collaborators. So I'll, yeah. I'll, see if, I'll see if they'll be interested in wanting to collaborate with you to create you know, that graphic because wow, there's just been so much conversation around that lately. So I was just thinking, you know what? She, I'm sure you're probably thinking like, I would love yeah. to do, I would love <laughs> to do something like that. Um, yeah. And the whole politics behind it, right. About how um, Trump tried to prevent critical race theory or anti-racism from being taught in schools. Like, give me a oh, break. Yeah. Like, how could you not be a responsible how could you be a responsible educator and not teach about anti-racism in the classroom? Like, 
Um, so there's a lot of confusion, I think, about critical race theory. I, I think people don't really understand what it is. Um, but if you think of it in terms of anti-racism, I think it's a lot easier to, to understand, like this is something that has to be taught in every single classroom from kindergarten up. Like it's not something that you have to start it right as soon as the kids start school. No, no, that's true. And the fact that he put out a whole executive order mm. to cease and desist all diversity, equity, and inclusion training, mm. including critical race theory workshops is just crazy. You know, mm. my wife, you know, she works for the government, you know, through Peace Corps. So as her organization was going through this process, everything had to shut down because of that executive order. No so it impacted way. a lot of people. Yeah. It impacted a lot of different people, um, including even teachers who are teaching, you know, different history lessons to students. Um, yeah. Because the 1619 project was also shut down too. And oh, there, were different, yeah. there were different acts that they were, that were, you know, pushed through Congress to try to shut down 1619 project. And then parents got on the bandwagon too, right? Like parents protesting this being taught in school as well. Oh, it's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. It's awful in the, in the States. I don't, we don't have that type of resistance to um, anti-racism training here in Canada, but I know in, in some of the, in some of the States, it's a real issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully and, uh, with the new administration, um, things will be different. Well, you can't go nowhere but up. No, you know, exactly. At this point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I have one more question before we get to the lightning round. And, okay. and that is uh, just throughout this conversation, you've been very honest and transparent about your growth in this anti-racism work. And I greatly appreciate it uh, first and foremost, because I think it's important for other white people to just see what that looks like and how it's not just this thing where, okay, I'm going to give you these lists and these checklists. And once you have this checklist, it's like abracadabra. Now I know everything by anti-racism. Mm -hmm. There's work that you, you put in and, and the fact that, it takes you sometimes a day or two or three days to even create these graphics also is a sign of your intentionality around making sure that the graphics are doing the different things you're learning justice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and there's no, there's no end point in your learning when it comes to anti-racism. Like there's so much to learn. There's so many books that have to be read and it's almost like one of those things where the, the more you read, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And you just have to keep on reading to keep on learning. And so um, I've really been on this journey for the past year. Like the, the George Floyd murder was, was a huge eye opener for me. And I think it was a watershed moment for a lot of, of folks. Um, and it's, um, you know, my social media feed prior to that on Instagram was was not about social justice. It was about um, education. It was about sketchnoting. It was about my travels. Um, but now it's it's all about 
um, social justice. It's just like it's completely changed for me what I think is important to put out there on social media. And this is just a question that came up for me. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at certain social media accounts mm -hmm. of other influencers and and white educators who may have had a, a, an account similar to yours prior to George Floyd, mm -hmm. but their accounts haven't changed even mm -hmm. after that has happened. Mm -hmm. Like, what's your reaction when you see that? I tell you, I've lost a lot of respect for some of the educators that I used to have a tremendous amount of respect for. Um, it's like George Floyd's murder never even happened. Mm. They barely missed a beat. Like, or or maybe they would have, maybe they posted a black square, <laughs> and mm, then right. and then nothing nothing after that. Right? It it boggles my mind that they can continue especially the ones who are huge influencers um, where a lot of teachers, a lot of white teachers really pay attention to the things that they're posting. Like this is what a great opportunity to um, bring some really important knowledge to the forefront and they're ignoring that opportunity. And it's, it's, I don't understand it. It's very frustrating for sure. No, I, I and you know I definitely agree with you on that. And I'm not saying that you have to be an expert mm -hmm. at these different concepts because I'm certainly not, not an expert. But I do read articles and, and op-eds and different books to build my capacity in those areas where I don't know a whole lot about. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it's about effort, right? Because yeah, or at least like share your platform, like what you're doing now. You're 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 doing a podcast and you're sharing other people's expertise like if you're if you're a, a social media influencer and you don't have the knowledge to create posts yourself like invite people to collaborate with you on things invite other people to take over your feed like in you know what i mean like there's things that you can do to still um try and correct a lot of the injustice that's going on in the world and ignoring it is not helping anyone out right and the work that you're doing, and I can't stress it enough, is just so powerful. And like I've seen people just share graphics all over. Like your graphics are all over the place. Repost, retweet. So mm. I mean, it's it's powerful what you're doing. So I definitely appreciate just your involvement and, and even just your own growth because it's important for people to see that like you don't have to be perfect. Absolutely. Like, make mistakes. But mm -hmm. the most important thing is how you respond to those mistakes you make mm -hmm. in order Absolutely. to make amends and, and to make the situation better. And I'm at the point where, like, listen, I know we, we talk so much about performative allyship, mm -hmm. um, especially now. So, yeah, you can have a, a black square there. But you know what? Like, I'd rather you have a black square than to not say anything at all. Mm. <laughs> and that's not to say that a black square is that much better. Right. It's, 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 it's a small. It's, it's an acknowledgement. <laughs> it's an acknowledgement that we have a problem. Yeah. The black square was weird though, because basically like the black square is silent. Was it, it like the, it, it silenced 
it, to me, it was an opportunity instead of putting posting a black square, like, what, well, like, why don't you say something that would help in this, in this whole problem that's going on right now with police violence, like a black square doesn't really say a whole lot to me, but anyway, yeah, but that's another conversation for another day. Yeah, for sure. So we have, we're at the hour, so I definitely want to go ahead into our lightning round. So I have a few quick hitter questions okay. uh, to ask you because we do want to get to know more about what you're doing now, you know, now that you're retired and, and not in the classroom anymore. Mm-hmm. So first question is, what do you do these days to exercise self-care? Mm, I love to bike ride and walk. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Is there a book that you're currently reading right now? Um, uh, based on education or just in general? Anything. Any book. Okay, so I'm reading a fabulous book called The Vanishing Half. Have you heard of that? That that book sounds familiar. Who yeah, are the I, authors? Um, uh, let me just see. I, I actually can't, I don't know offhand who the authors are. It's, it's one author, but it's a novel. I love reading novels. Um, in terms of education, the book that I just ordered and I'm dying to read is called Start Here, Start Now by Liz Kleinrock. Liz Kleinrock is teach and transform, Ooh. you know, you know, I know, her, right? I know Liz Kleinrock. Yep. I need to order it. That's actually yeah. a book I need to order. Yeah. And I think that's a book that's going to be fabulous for teachers. So I ordered it and I'm looking forward to getting that. Right. Um, much love to Liz Kleinrock. So for anybody that wants to learn more about just the Asian American experience and just AAPI people and, in general and, and jewish right she's she's and, got all kinds and she's of, got jewel yeah she's yeah she has that as well so yeah. but she's she, great sure. she's her, awesome yeah her work is amazing she's awesome yeah. um love following her and just getting wisdom from her yeah um if you could invite three influential figures dead or alive to dinner who would they be um I love the Obamas. So I would have... Everybody says the Obamas. Oh, no. I'm not being very original. <laughs> no, that's fine. They, they're lovable. Okay. Oh, yeah. I just find that, like, I saw her speak um, during her book launch, and it was an hour, and I was just, like, so taken by her. Her charisma and her sense of humor and her wisdom just blew me away. And, you know, everyone loves Barack, and he's just... I've always had a crush on, on Brock. Um, so <laughs> definitely those two. And then to throw in some Canadian content, I would say Viola Desmond. Viola Desmond is the Canadian equivalent of Rosa Parks. So in 1946, she, so she's a black woman. And in 1946, she was thrown out of a theater because she refused to leave the seats that was designated for white people. And um, it galvanized the Nova Scotia black population to fight for change. And in 1954, segregation was legally ended in Nova Scotia. So Nova Scotia is a province here in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she spearheaded that movement. And and 1954 was was like 10 years before the U.S. officially ended 
um, segregation. So that would be someone that I would love to meet and and find out um, more about her and have a conversation with her on on the bravery that it took for her to to get that going. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And then last question: Who would you like to see be a guest on this podcast? Oh, definitely Liz Kleinrock, Teach and Transform for sure. I think she'd offer your listeners a whole lot. She's really busy, though. I don't know if you'll be able to get her. Right. (laughs) And if you had any personal connection with her, you would send her a word like, hey, come to A Day Tough Educators Live. Yeah, no, I'm one of her, like, 150,000 followers. (laughs) (laughs) Same here. She doesn't know me very well, but you could always ask. I think she'd be fantastic. Hey, listen, I swing for the fences all the time. So, I mean, I've been saying those so many times. Doesn't matter. I, I'll still keep on trying. But uh, Sylvia, thank you so much for, for coming on. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, it's an honor to have you on this platform. And I definitely look forward to continuing to connect with you uh, further. Same, same, Kwame. Thank you for reaching out to me. Um, and I look forward to collaborating with you on a graphic in the future. Right. And, and you know what? I definitely want to share uh, a couple of influencers who I think would help you with that graphic. Matter okay. of fact, um, if you stay on after, I'll, I'll definitely uh, share those names. Let's do that. All right. Awesome. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, we'll connect soon. Okay, nice chatting with you. Thanks, Kwame. All right. All right, people. So there you have it. Another phenomenal episode of A Day Tough Educators Live. Until next time, people, I want to wish you all a good morning, good night, good afternoon, and we're going to do this again another time. All right, peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.